0: Christmas. And where Christmas and Easter are the two most attended weeks of the year, the two least attended weeks of the year are the days after that. So for those of you that are here, you are truly the dedicated and faithful and it's nice to be with you this evening and studying God's Word. For my day job, uh, again Mike encourages me to keep introducing myself. I'm a researcher at Bethel University and I, and I research around the area of social studies, particularly video games. that are used for teaching and learning in the classroom. And this was always one of my lifetime dreams. You can ask Anne Marie, who was in my seventh grade classroom, when they said, what do you want to do when you grow up, Mr. Dickers? And I said, I'd like to be Dr. D, because I think it sounds cool. And so I went and did that, and I had to study something that I actually thought I'd want to study for the rest of my life. And what I realized was it wasn't actually video games. I got done with my doctorate. I actually got a job, and then I got really bored of studying video games. They have the same formula. And you start to see the formula everywhere you look. And then I really wanted to study the Bible more. So this is, to me, what I do on my spare time. And when Mike asked me if I'd be willing to teach over the break, I said, yes, what better could I do over the break than study something other than what I studied during the week? So I went a little nuts on this, and I have to apologize (laughs) that um, I had extra time and I was able to. But I I hope you're going to enjoy it too. I'm also going to apologize for another thing. I'm not going to continue in Ecclesiastes. Um, For a couple of reasons. One, I just didn't feel led to. I have the notes. It's all ready to go. So as I do Wednesday nights here and there throughout the years, uh, like Trevor's working his way through Hebrews, I'm trying to work my way through Ecclesiastes, but it's a depressing book. And I wasn't depressed as I came out of the Christmas season. I was actually really touched by the, the service. And so like last time I taught on a Sunday, I just tried to keep going where Mike was. Where Mike happened to be last Saturday night was the Christmas story and it occurred to me what happens after the Christmas story like we almost know that story by heart but the whole second half of chapter 2 you know circumcision good stuff like that we just kinda we don't really memorize that part but there's so much in there that's wonderful and Luke wasn't writing the Christmas story Luke was writing a book the largest of the four Gospels he was trying to make an account for a guy named Theophilus right And the the book of, of Luke opens with my dear Theophilus, and here's the book you've hired me to write. So Luke was a researcher, a lot like what I get to do for a living. He was hired to go out and find all of the first person accounts, all of the witnesses, before they died off, and document everything around Jesus Christ including John the Baptist and in Luke we get to see some of the most detailed accounts of what Jesus is all about. His purpose was to write an authentic historical record for Theophilus and we don't know a lot about Theophilus we only know that he had enough money to pay somebody to go and travel around the Middle East and get all of these stories. He didn't only get contracted to write Luke he also wrote about the early church in the book of Acts. So we have this person who's going out and doing this. And for a few other reasons, we get to read about some of these legal pieces, um, but the context here is we see the most detailed human perspectives of Jesus Christ. Because Luke's trying to follow the rules of research. He's trying to write a document that looks a lot like Josephus's works, who was an v- official Roman historian. He was writing in the rules of the world that were existing then. Matthew, I always think of, he is kind of writing for his Jewish, and he goes through all the prophecies. There's hundreds of prophecies about Jewish. Uh, about Jesus and Messiah in the Old Testament and Matthew just goes through and clocks them all off almost every sentence. It's a beautiful book. And then you get Mark which is kind of trying to write down what Peter would say when he would get in front of a pe- group of people. It's the shortest book. It was kind of Peter's go-to message, right? And Mark documents that as a dutiful uh, disciple of, of of Peter. And then you get John which is written later which is more like a love story, right? It's, it's, John was that dear person close to Jesus's heart. But in Luke, you see more of a historical account. And for me and my temperament and people like me, Luke is the gospel that really helped me to become saved. It was the one that convinced me and and compelled me like, wow, this is the real thing. So that's the context for today. Um, Basically, in the end of chapter 2, and really what he was doing with the Christmas story that we're all familiar with, is Luke's trying to document that Jesus was the Savior of the world from before he started to speak publicly at age 30 that he was the Savior of the world before he was even born and that he is legally our Savior and Redeemer under the Jewish law. Now Theophilus was arguably, it's a Greek name, probably wasn't a Jewish person so he would come in with a series of questions um, and he would start to ask those questions. uh, Questions that a Greek or a Roman person would ask about a Jewish Messiah like why should a Jewish Messiah matter to me? And those questions, I'll go through a few of those, and then we'll look at circumcision, and then we'll talk about Simeon, and then we'll talk about Anna. So we have a ton to do tonight. And these are all some of my favorite stories. And this, and all of this, was I was getting ready for Sunday, but the reality is I couldn't fit it all into Sunday. So I want to start tonight. I'm going to finish on Sunday with the genealogy of Jesus and, um, and chapter 3, which is John the Baptist talking to the people, the, the hope and the light of the world. In other words, if you had an amazing Christmas season, this is kind of the morning after sermon. um, Which is like, what happens after the Christmas story? And what does Luke say about the childhood of Jesus Christ and what kind of person he was? So, we're going to go, if you open your Bibles, to chapter 2. And we're going to start from uh, verse 21. And we're going to start with the delightful topic of circumcision. If you know what that is, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail. If you don't know what that is, ask your parents later. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who, who opens the womb shall be called to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. I don't know how many times I've read past that passage and just, but then when you get to research it, I told you I'm going to get a little carried away. So let's talk about Roman history first. Roman history goes by the rule of Daw, D-A-W. Dates, accounts, witnesses. If you can get dates, accounts, and witnesses, you're going to have a fact under the, research traditions of the Roman Empire. So that's all you really needed. The dates had to be Roman dates. You couldn't go give me a bunch of Jewish dates and have that have any legitimacy. Everything had to be rooted in Roman history. So we're gonna see that throughout the teaching tonight. You had to have accounts. You had to have first-person witnesses and we still have the same tradition today. You needed two. Two witnesses could persecute someone in a court of law. It also could validate a historical fact. The bonus was the W, the witnesses. The more witnesses, the better. So if you could say this happened, here's two people giving me a sentence or two about each one and quote those sentences and then document the witnesses that would have been there for that event, you're golden in, in Roman history. That was the rule of scholarship at the time. So we're gonna see that pattern come up. We already saw it in Pastor Mike's talk when he was looking at Zacharias and Elizabeth were two accounts that gave uh, to the John the Baptist. And when Zacharias comes out of the temple, Luke points out, if you go back just a page to chapter 1, verse 10, he talks to a whole multitude, so there's your witnesses. So we've got dates in, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 5. We've got the accounts of Zacharias and, and, and Elizabeth. And in chapter 1, 21 and 22, Zacharias goes mute in front of a whole multitude at the temple. We've got Daw. We've got dates, accounts, and witnesses. Another example is that in in chapter 2 verse 1 and 2 and this is the Christmas story we're familiar it came to pass in the days of Caesar Augustus that all should be uh, registered. This census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Do you see the Roman dates? That's how Romans dated themselves. Who are the accounts? Well you've got Joseph and Mary giving account of what happened and witnesses you have you've got these shepherds that were the witnesses of that event you can tell Luke had to stretch to get the witnesses for that event, but God provided them. There are shepherds for that. When we get to this next piece, the, the crowds get bigger, the witnesses get bigger, and the accounts or the, the, the eyewitness testimonies get to be more and more significant. But I just wanted to show you that we've already seen that pattern in Luke a few times. So Luke doesn't stop at the Christmas story. He goes on and he continues to show the marvels that are Jesus Christ in the life of Jesus Christ. He's doing this, I think, because if I'm Theophilus and I'm saying to Luke, I want you to go write this book for me, I think he's basically, it's like, I want to find out more about this Jesus. And when I talk to the official Jewish people, I get story after nothing's consistent. But when I talk to you Christians, you have this consistent story and you really need to write it down. You've got to get those witnesses and organize it. So Matthew and Mark had already been written when Luke did this. Luke pulls some of those pieces from those existing works so you have the synoptic Gospels, the three that are kind of similar to each other and Luke is pulling from those as references and that's pretty commonly accepted as as what's going on. But Luke's trying to make a different kind of case this is why we're not reading Matthew or Mark, we're reading Luke. He's trying to make the case that there's a legal justification within Jewish law that allows for Theophilus to be justified under that law. That's crazy if you think about it. Theophilus and most Romans and Greeks didn't have a problem with miracles they accepted that they happened. They didn't have a problem with uh, God and a human making a baby. They had that throughout both Greek and Roman theology and history. They believed there were titans as we saw in Genesis that were the marriage of spiritual beings and human beings. That wasn't the issue. The issue was okay if all this is true and the God of the universe bought Jesus then how can I be saved under that law? It doesn't make any sense. And this is part of the Roman questions. You want me to give you more just to turn you all into skeptics? To think like Romans for a moment? How can Jesus offer me an inheritance of God? What's the claim that he's making? A claim was not an argument. Matthew makes an argument to the Hebrew people but a claim for an inheritance has to be a legal claim under Roman law. Do You see what I'm saying? So that's one huge question. So how can I inherit what Jesus has to offer if I'm not his biological kid? I have to be his adopted kid. So what's the adoption law of the Jewish people? That has to be understood. For me to be adopted into Jesus's kingdom. Otherwise as Christians sometimes we use that language and well I'm the yeah I'm, we're all children of God. Well what is that? How can I be a child of God? I'm not in that family tree. So Luke has to make an argument that the family tree is bigger than the Jewish people and he's gonna do that throughout what we're gonna do. Here's another question. How could Jesus's family be the choice of any God for any inheritance? He wasn't surrounded by rich wealthy people. Jesus was not a ruler. He was not a king, he was not a priest in the temple. How in the world could a carpenter give the inheritance to the whole world? That doesn't make any sense. I'm gonna get worse, and, and for those of you that are maybe skeptical already, I'll recover from this. But I wanna, this kind of thinking is for me what drives good research. And and I think it's what drove Luke. So here's the third one. Wouldn't a carpenter have been of too poor to provide the proper sacrifices? When I give sacrifice to justify a child under Jewish law, I was supposed to give a lamb, a pigeon, and two turtle doves, but that's not what we read here. So how is it, how's that possible, and why is it that suddenly you have somebody where when we look in the temple records, there were, the donation was a pair of turtle doves and a pair of young pigeons. That doesn't make any sense. You're supposed to sacrifice a lamb. It's the Lamb of God that takes our sins and pulls them away. So Jesus, if he didn't sacrifice a lamb, his family was setting himself up to be not an official or unclean or pure sacrifice. Jesus isn't pure. That could have been one of the arguments. Another argument that I think Luke's going to be responding to here is that Jesus is just a Jewish God. So how is Jesus the God of the Gentiles? Why is Zeus not my king? Why do I not, you know, why do I not bow down to Saturn or, well, there's other. They had many gods. You could take your pick. Um, but why this one God? Why Yahweh? And Romans, again, didn't think Yahweh didn't exist. He, they just thought Yahweh was the Jewish God. And the Jewish God clearly was the loser historically because they were subjugated people. They didn't have their own country at this time. The Romans thought all these other nations have gods, but their gods are weaker than our gods. So why would a Jewish God be one that I want to bow down to? Isn't that just going to tick off my Roman and Greek gods? And, and, and again, bear with me on this because I don't believe these questions and I think there's solid answers to them, but they had to be answered for us as Gentiles to have a worthy inheritance in the kingdom of God. Any sort of legal right or claim when we get to heaven. So, Luke's kind of doing that. What appears at first glance to be something just about circumcision and the presentation in the temple and these turtle doves and pigeons, there's a lot buried in here, and I want to walk through that real quick, and then we'll get to Simeon. So, let's start in verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So, his name was called Jesus. Jesus, or I'm sorry, his name was called Jesus. I'm going to start with that and I'll go back to the eight days because the eight days goes right into verse 22 which is the purification. Jesus we know is the Lord is our salvation. That's what the word means. There was a Greek version of that and there was a, a Hebrew version of that and, and the, the, the meaning of it was understood. The Lord is our salvation. When, when you have a name that means our salvation, Luke's already building the case through his little pieces he adds in here that our means all of our translation. So Jesus is our salvation doesn't mean Jesus is Jewish salvation. It means Jesus was our salvation. If, when we see in the Christmas story, Luke's already made the claim that God fathered this child, that Joseph confirmed he was not the father of this child, and that Mary was the mother. So he's not arguing that that's possible, which in today, our temperament today would be like, wait, how's that possible? The temperament then what well, that was perfectly possible. The question was, if God birthed a child, Jesus was the firstborn son, and the firstborn son of any family was the inheritor of that kingdom and that prophet. So if Jesus was actually fathered by God, then Jesus was the rightful heir to the kingdom of God, which is the entire world, because the claim of Yahweh is that he made the world. It's all his. Right? Legally then. He's adopted by Joseph as the heir to the house of David. This is a key piece that we saw there too. Interesting, Luke doesn't get into the lineage of Jesus until chapter 3. So he's making a lot of cases that would have appealed to a Roman person where Matthew leads off with the lineage, right? Because that's so important that he's in there. But in Luke, it goes back a little bit. The lineage is there. He is the heir and the adopted heir of David. In other words, our Messiah was adopted into the throne of David but he was born into the throne of the world. Do you see what Luke's doing there for his Roman viewer? So he belonged to God the Father. And where you see that here is his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And this is the point of God being the Father. Fathers in Jewish cultures typically named the sons. It's why they didn't believe Elizabeth until John wrote down his, or, uh, Zacharias wrote down his name as John. It was the father that had to confirm the name in the family. And that had to do with the tradition and the inheritance. And even in Jewish law, your land rights were based on father to firstborn son. So Luke's making the case here that Joseph didn't name the child. God did through his messenger and angel. And that name was assigned to Jesus before he was even in the womb, which says God, this entity of Jesus, existed prior to being knit together in the womb. I think that's kind of cool. Of secondary importance was this line of David then. Uh, The stronger claim for Luke goes first, that he's God's son. The secondary claim that he's Joseph's son in the line of David is also a claim, but it gets pushed off to verse 3. Remember, there's, uh, the John's birth, this is kind of a point of drama, and I already mentioned that. My point here is that the particular name is actually the core argument that, Jesus, that Luke is making. So Luke's trying to argue that the, Lord is our, that the Lord is our salvation, and that's actually the name that this person's given. That would have really spoke to a Gentile audience. The name itself would have spoke to the Gentile. Well, this is a Jewish rabbi that's the salvation of all of us, and that seems to be an odd kind of point to make. Jesus then goes on to follow or fulfill three laws of the Jewish faith. All three of these laws were hotly conflicted. Should males get circumcised if they're Gentiles becoming believers or should they not? Is this a Jewish thing? Is this a Greek thing? What should we do in this? And Paul has whole pieces where he tries to speak to that conversation. Luke I think does it in a much more artful way. He just simply explains the law but look at how he does it. It's important here that we see that there's eight days. Jesus should have been dedicated according to God's property as, as he was, and naming was done after seven days of rest. I love looking back in the law. If you go back to Leviticus 12, you can see where the law is written. Verses 1 through 4. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman is conceived and bore a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, In the days of her customary impurity she shall be unclean, and on the eighth day of the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification for 33 days. Leviticus is full of these laws that are kind of odd to our ears, right? So when we use words like unclean today, that's kind of got a negative connotation. Unclean is used over 14,000 times in the Bible for everything. It has to do with whether or not you wash your hands before meals. It has to do with anything that would mean that you should just be set aside for a little while. So as people are getting healthy, even after they're healthy, there's a period where they just get a break. So, if you look at the ancient world, the idea that a woman should be able to take a little break after she gives birth is really humane. So when we read this to our ears, it's like, why are they saying unclean and all that? They're saying it so that the guys could figure it out. Leave her alone. She just gave birth. Not only that, you need to wait till you even name that child for seven days and you think that's extremely merciful for all of you that have given birth that's a really nice thing you get some time off more than that more than just in seven days you can name them after seven days but you need to wait a whole 33 more days before you go travel to the temple and dedicate them in other words God doesn't want to abuse your wife she gets a month to recover then you can put her in a wagon and bring your new baby down to the temple that you're so excited about so if you can look at it through the eyes of kind of the first century, this seems to be a real restriction on the men but it, I'm sure for the women this was a blessed maternity leave from all the other work that they had to do. And I, So it depends on how you read that. Uh, people often go to the New Testament and find things to complain about. I'm like this is the first time in world history that women get a maternity leave. I think that's pretty graceful and amazing. So, and if they want to use words like leave her alone, like just let her not go near the temple. In fact, don't bring her near anything, it goes on to say. Um, I think that's wonderful. So in verse 22, Now then, the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed. They brought him to the Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Essentially, you can name as you want with your rabbi but then after a month you need to go to the Temple of Jerusalem. Remember the distances here are short, right? They walked between towns. Israel is a very small country so the law of coming to Jerusalem to dedicate had two primary purposes in ancient Judaism. One, they could document it and keep records. Jews were like the Mormons. They kept dedicated family trees because they were looking for the Messiah. So they really kept track of all of it in a very articulate way. So that firstborn son had to go on record or that land right didn't go on to that family. So it was essentially you got to the temple because that's where they kept the records. Second purpose of it I think is spiritual. You want to honor God and show God that he is in charge of everything including your womb and your family and how big your family is going to get. Luke interestingly enough cites the reason for this. So again you could read right past this at a glance and I don't think this is secret hidden knowledge. I think he's just referencing Old Testament scrolls like a good historian does. If you want to look them up you can. When he says, according to the law in verse 22, the law is in Leviticus and it has to do with that 33 days. But then he cites, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy by the Lord. Interestingly, he's not in Leviticus there. There's nothing in Leviticus that looks like that. So you go searching all over the Old Testament for a long time, between cups of coffee. It's in Exodus. It's actually from the original story and then he goes right back to Leviticus, the same chapter with the pair of turtle doves and the young pigeons, citing an obscure clause in the law. All of this answers those questions I talked about that I think a Greek person like Theophilus would have. Let's walk through it real quick. First back to Exodus 13 verse 2. He's paraphrasing here a little bit but here's the passage. Consecrate to me all the firstborn Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man and beast, it is mine. God's claiming it. He's saying this to Moses immediately after he pulls him out of the country. And here's what I think is cool. Jesus was not the first thing that the God of the universe fathered. According to the Bible, God fathered Adam and then Eve, right? He also fathered a country. So immediately upon pulling this group of slaves out of Egypt, he tells Moses, you've got two things you need to do. Every year, you're going to celebrate a feast where you take seven days and you don't eat anything that's leaven, All unleavened bread. And on the eighth day, you can feast with your family and friends and celebrate what I've given to you. But I want you to wait seven days. It's the the number of days that Egypt was plagued. And remember, the last plague was the firstborn son getting taken. So Israel has to follow that feast, that feast is described in between circumcision. You're going to wait seven days. And on the eighth day, you can name the child and celebrate that you've got a child. But you're going to wait. You're going to tithe that to me. Moreover, on your firstborn, I want you after 33 days more, I want you to make that trip to the temple. You don't have to do it with all your kids, just your firstborn male. Because even that is dedicated to the Lord. And when he goes to Exodus and he gets this first, think how that must sound to a Greek person, because this is prior to the founding of Israel as a nation. Moses was leading a group of slaves. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man and beast, it is mine. I own it. God's claiming that he is adopting those things. They belong to him and he wanted the Israelites to tithe their money. First first fruits of any crop 10% goes right to the temple. I get those first fruits your first donkey that's born which is part of this Exodus 13 passage. Even when your donkey gives birth for the first time, that first donkey you're either going to kill it or there's this little rule there. I got this from Trevor by the way at the, at the Bible study the other night. He's like whenever you see a reference in the New Testament to the Old Testament, don't just read the verse, read the whole chapter. So I did that and I was like oh my goodness this is amazing. So he's citing every male who opens the womb shall be called holy by the Lord. It's in Exodus and then suddenly you see this thing where it has to do with lambs as sacrifices that can be substituted for your donkey. So bear with me here for a second. It's stunning the degree to which the lamb is the imagery of not only the Messiah, but of the sacrifice for all of our sins. And if you've ever been around sheep, they're miserable little animals, right? But they're valuable too, they're precious. They give wool, they give meat, they can, goats can give milk. They're amazing animals in that light, too. So this idea that you had to give everything to God, including that first donkey, you were either supposed to break that donkey's neck or if that donkey was too valuable because you need those beasts of burden, you could take one of the, a perfect lamb from your flock and you could bring that to the temple and sacrifice it instead of your donkey. It could be a substitute or an appropriation that would substitute it. This is where the turtle doves and pigeons come in, too, and we'll look at that, is that God makes substitutes and he has great mercy about it. Otherwise, Judaism would have just been a religion for rich people, people that had donkeys and animals and things to give away. All right, back to the thing here. So here's the the piece, I think, that Theophilus may not have picked up on all that Jewish stuff that I just talked about, right? A Greek reader would have just read through here going, okay, follow the law. I get that. He's a legal inheritor of God's kingdom. But Luke throughout his gospel puts Easter eggs, and I'm using the term Easter eggs A because I'm a computer game researcher, and I actually think the gamers use the term better than we do on Easter. On Easter we take little eggs and throw them in the yard and let kids find them, right? In computer games, Easter eggs are things that the developers have hidden in the code that you don't find out unless you read the magazines and find out about it in other ways. They're like secret unlockables that are hidden throughout the the product. So When we look at the Gospel of Luke, we see Easter eggs throughout it, like that one I just talked about. Like this little reference to Exodus off to the side that a Roman or a Greek reader wouldn't have noticed, but a Jewish reader would have been like, oh my goodness, this is the appropriation of sin. So Luke does that consistently where he doesn't just blatantly say it like Paul does. He kind of gets into just dropping these little pieces there. So God's fathered the king of a nation, and he's fathered a nation, and now he's fathered the king of that nation. And he's done it through the law. And he's been there. So in verse 24, to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Again, notice the phrasing. It's the law of the Lord, not the law of the Jews. This is the law of God given to Moses before the Jewish nation was founded, before the first temple was built, right? So if we go back to Leviticus 12, verses 6 and 7, When the days of her purification are fulfilled, you've gone uh, seven plus 33, you've gone those 40 days, right? Whether a son or a daughter, she shall bring the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering and a young pigeon and a young turtle dove as a sin offering. I won't get into burnt offerings versus sin offerings, but that's interesting too. If you want your own Easter egg, go digging into that to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Jesus was dedicated under Jewish law one sheep, one pigeon, one turtle dove that was the appropriate thing everyone knew that but in the records it says something different it says two turtle doves and two pigeons so if Jesus is the firstborn and he's dedicated under Jewish law there is this issue of ownership rights that would have been in question because he didn't give one of each. He gave two of pigeons and two turtle doves. So first, why include this? Why put something in the record that might not look, make Jesus look like the proper inheritor of this kingdom? Right? There's a problem here. First of all, it's probably part of what they sat around and discussed when people fell asleep out the window when Paul was talking all night. This is the kind of stuff they would have been wrestling with, right? well how's Jesus wait how did what and let's read the Jewish law and they would try to figure this out Luke's citing an obscure reference and a clause in the law here it's a law of substitution we can sacrifice things that have equivalent value to us as a substitution in the law and it's actually kind of that note that comes afterwards so if you read the next verse going from Leviticus 12 6 and 7 if you read 8 there's a clause which is a legal exception to the rule. And here's the clause. This is the law for who, her who has born a male or female. If she's not able to bring a lamb, she may bring two turtle doves or young pigeons as one burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. So you can do either. In other words, the temple records and this little clause at the end of that passage match up. So there's a legal lineage here. Jesus actually was appropriately given. Second thought about that. um, This is one of the things that Jesus was furious about in the temple. And we look at like, does this matter? Is this really important? And I like to think, if if you've been in any big city, pigeons are everywhere, right? They're not a valuable bird. They're not like sheep which have all these wonderful things for the economy. If you take time, you can catch a pigeon. In other words, if you're not rich and wealthy, there's a way for you to be pure and clean in God's kingdom, even before Jesus. I think that's fascinating. If you commit, if, if, so you're broke, go out on the streets of the city and find a pigeon and set up a trap and catch. It might take you a couple hours, but they're not that smart of bird or that clever, mm-hmm. Right? But it does show that you're willing to give your time. And what were the people in Jerusalem doing that got Jesus so mad? They were catching all the pigeons and making it so everybody had to pay up. The whole point of substitution is some people can't afford the price of purity. And I'm one of those people. There is no way I could pay the debt that I owe. The law of substitution, and I know I'm pulling a lot out of this here. Luke's making a point to Theophilus here that you're legally in good terms because substitution is a common law. The reference to Exodus is that lambs were sacrifice, sacrificed. The reference back to Leviticus and this unique clause at the end, verse 8 of chapter 12 of Leviticus is that you could substitute a lamb for two cheap birds. God didn't care what you gave. It's all God's. Give 20 cows you know if you're wealthy and rich give you know donate highly to the temple or whatever but if you're broke at least give your time at least give something that means something to you even if you don't have wealth right I think of this old lady in the church when I was a kid who would make like knit things for people and she would give them out at Christmas and I remember these spoiled people that would be like all upset that they got stupid-looking mittens Or whatever but this lady worked all year on these things It was a huge blessing and you think what an amazing thing and she was living on Social Security she didn't have money she didn't have wealth but she gave her time back to the church and that was something that was this amazing blessing to 99 percent of the people that that got those mittens and hats you had all these parents telling their kids just pretend like you like them Um, but what a blessing what an amazing thing and I think God sees that and he's amazed by it and we're gonna see that with Simeon and Anna when we get there so turtle doves and pigeons This is the problem, it's all in my head, and then i got to find where I'm at in my notes. So it's all legal, and I'll I'll move on to Simeon here. One last thought. Um, Where Luke is making the legal case, if you read the book of John, you see the spiritual argument. And the way John says this is actually really beautiful. So if you turn to John 1, it's the next book, just flip a few pages, and look at verses 11 and 12. Stuff tells me i got to wait when I do this so people can actually find it. But as many as received him, to him he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name and were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, and the word became flesh. John leads with this thought. Jesus is the word, The word is made flesh that flesh has an inheritance and you can become the children of God Luke just doesn't say it as flowery but he says it legally under the Jewish law Gentiles can be saved and a substitution can be made for you to be clean so that you can inherit the kingdom and those things all fall into place verse 25 and behold and look take a peek at this Theophilus He took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, I'm just some stranger walking up and grabbing your baby. You know, Mary's pretty laid back if she's letting this happen, but I think she knew there's something important going on here. So he holds up the baby and he says, Lord, you're now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. And glory of your people Israel we're back to testimony now so Luke is showing we saw dates all that circumcision those days and times we're dating everything now we're getting to those a the accounts right so the first account is Simeon the second one's Anna interesting accounts to pick right oh this is so I again I got if I'm geeked out about this and you're not with me I'm sorry but I get so into this stuff and I was going like all morning and stuff. So like, it took you a long time to get that ready. And I'm like, well, I got this ready in about this amount of time. But there's so much more here. I'm just going to flash you through a few things. Um, as Simeon was dead when Luke went to write this book, he couldn't talk directly to Simeon. So who did he talk to? How does he know the Simeon story? And if you keep peeking, you're going to see that in verse 33, he tells you his source. Joseph and Mary gave this account. You want to confirm that account? The little passage that he says when he lifts the baby, do you see that it's in quotes? Where would he get that quotation from? Who wrote that down? And the reality is there was laws around prophets in the temple. If you wanted to get up and say you knew what God was saying to you, you had a Holy Spirit voice, in the temple you wrote it down and if anything you said was wrong they could stone you under the law. So. If you're going to say God's talking to you, you better be pretty sure of it, right? And in fact, if you died and something didn't happen and you said it was going to happen, they'll destroy every prophecy that prophet ever made. So you might live a whole lifetime and have all these prophecies lined up and half of them come true, but if one of them is not true, they destroy everything from the temple records. Which is one of the things that legitimizes Micah, Isaiah, Zephaniah—all those Old Testament prophets were prophets where everything they said came true, and everything that they said happens in future times is still, we're still—that should come true too. But they've been validated at every point. If at any point they're not validated, the Jewish leadership can pull that prophet out of the temple records. So when Simeon says, "I'm going to go to rest in peace," he knows his legacy is held sure. Every prophecy is given including I'm gonna see the Messiah before I die but I haven't seen the Messiah and I'm getting up there in years come on Lord is this if I'm wrong about that Lord they're gonna my legacy has gone I wouldn't live in peace people you're gonna be defaced after you die but if I'm right then I should be seeing the Messiah here like I said it was gonna happen and and it should be happening so I think that's it's a big deal when you make a claim like I'm gonna see the Messiah before I die with my own eyes and for, for Simeon that's interesting. So it's important we know what's going on um, about this. The descriptive words that Luke uses are just and devout. I want to dig into those words just a little bit. They're super unique in the Bible. You'd think they're everywhere, but they're not. Just is, but devout? This is the only time in the Bible that word's used. So why is that such a unique word and why would he use that? So just and devout. Jesus is surrounded by law abiders. So if you're looking for accounts and witnesses of something happening, why wouldn't you just go to the head temple priest and ask them? Why wouldn't you just go to the archives, which is probably where they got this prophecy from, right? They pulled that from some written source. Why would you pick Simeon? And the way he describes Zacharias, Elizabeth, Joseph, and Mary, if you go back to chapter 1 and 2, he consistently describes them as righteous people, just people. These were good, decent people that lived their faith out on a day-to-day basis waiting upon the Lord. Simeon's such a beautiful image of that. Verse 1, if you want it, by the way, it's chapter 1, verse 6 for Zacharias and Elizabeth. They're both righteous. In chapter 1, verse 30, Mary's found favor with God. And now here in 2.23, we see the story of Simeon and in 2.36 when we get to Anna, he's going to describe her as she does not depart. These are solid people. These are good witnesses. You see what he's doing there? So when he uses the word just, which is the word diakeos, um, the word in the Greek implies years of dedication of being right, right? The word that gets used everywhere else in the Bible is diakeos, uh, nah, not a Greek speaker, but diakaios versus diakeos, right? Diakeios means you're humanly just, you're legal under the human law. You're just and I haven't gotten arrested. That means I'm just, right? When you say the other one, which is diakaios, it means you're righteous and innocent in your character. You have a divine justice. So when he says he's just and devout, Luke's basically using a Greek word that would have meant to Theophilus that he was just under the eyes of God. No one had a claim against this guy now we know that no one's just no not one other than Jesus Christ right and Simeon would have admitted he had failings and and flaws but at the end of his days people saw him as a righteous person there is a redemptive spirit when the Holy Spirit speaks to people that changes us and makes us different people than who we were I was a snot when I was a kid if you would have met me honestly I was not a nice kid to be around Um, and heavy metal was everything I lived for and computer games even then and Lord's changed me. I still like my computer games, but um, I'm a different person in a more essential way. God has made me into something different, and I think Simeon was the same thing there. Devout, eulabies, God-fearing, God-respecting, uh, takes care, deliberate, um, is another way to say it. So with Theophilus, he's saying he is godly, just, in a righteous way, and he is fearful of God so that he doesn't speak speak flippantly. Simeon was not given to emotive explanations in the temple. He was kind of that solid old guy that barely ever talks, right? So when you use the word devout or eulabies, there's an implication there that this was just somebody who was just solid and, and wasn't given that way. Anna was a little different, we'll get to her in a second, but basically Luke's saying Simeon can bear witness to the fact that Joseph and Mary showed up in the temple. A carpenter and his wife wouldn't have made a splash to the temple authorities. They would not have been excited. His coronation wouldn't have been a big deal. It would have been a very little thing that some little mid-level priest would have taken care of because Jesus' family was part of the masses. But something was different about Simeon. He was one of those middle-level people. We see here that he has his day off. I'll get to that in a second. The righteousness thing. I think it's interesting that righteousness is possible. We, None of us are righteous, but under the law when we are forgiven, we can be called righteous. And I think it's interesting that in God's word, he talks about somebody like Simeon, kind of our favorite grandfather. And there's this reverence for this guy. We don't remember Simeon's failings or flaws. We remember that he was an amazing human being. And the way God remembers Simeon is that he was just and devout. And I think that's kind of a beautiful thought. I hope someday when God writes me down in the book of life, overall he ignores my younger years and even the things I failed on last week and overall he says, Sean was a good guy. Right? And that's actually who God elevates to be one of the two accounts of Jesus's purification ritual. Right? It's not this big elaborate thing where you're crowning a king But the most holy guy in the room, Simeon, the guy you all know, he's the one that was there when Jesus was there. He was over 100 years old, right? So we see that, or no, I'm sorry, that was Anna. She's the old one. But Simeon's probably up there too. Um, The Holy Spirit talks to Simeon, verse 26. Well, at the end of 25, the Holy Spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he would seen the Lord's Christ." I think this is theologically a side point here. When people say the Holy Spirit shows up after Jesus is resurrected, that's not biblical. The Holy Spirit is all over in the Bible, including on Simeon when Jesus was a wee lad. So the idea that Jesus just shows up in some weird way on Pentecost, the Spirit is talking to everybody on Pentecost. It is a big deal. But the Spirit has always been there. It's been there since the beginning. That voice behind the ear, right? And when people are living righteous, like Simeon, this guy waiting on the Messiah, in in verse 25 we see God was upon him. In verse 26 we see God reveals things to him. And in verse 27 he leads him. And I love the idea of leading. In Australia they have a tradition called a walkabout. And you just put a bag on your back and you walk out your house, say, goodbye mom and dad, I'm going on a walkabout. And it's kind of where you just go find yourself a little bit. Now that can be weird and mystical. But essentially that's what, Simeon, what we see Simeon doing here, right? So he came by the Spirit into the temple. He's walking around on a no particular day, hanging out in Jerusalem, and he's just by the Spirit. He's, Spirit, where did I go next? Oh, I'm going to go to the temple. he's just heading there. He seems to have enough authority, mid-level manager, to be able to conduct a purification ritual. So if he's blessing Jesus and doing that, he's fulfilling those legal obligations. So he's coming into the temple on his day off. This is a guy that just likes to hang out at the temple, right? He just came by. So I think that phrasing is interesting and that idea of just following the Lord or listening to the Lord. As Simeon waits on the Messiah, God does the other three things. God comes upon him in the Holy Spirit. He reveals things to him and he leads him. What a great model for us. If our business is about waiting for the Messiah, we should be waiting for God to be on us to speak to us and reveal things to us and to lead us in what we should do every day. That's super practical. Um, but just a, a side note and I like the idea that God loves humble people. Simeon wouldn't have been in any history book if it wasn't for Luke, if it wasn't for Jesus, if it wasn't for God intervening. Simeon would have been forgotten into the annals of history. He'd have been ignored. He's a nobody. And so am I. right? And I think it's interesting that God loves people that are essentially not the, somebody the world's going to celebrate, right? So George Michael just died this last week. So did Carrie Fisher. These are two people that wrote songs and hung out in movies, and they're going to be remembered for maybe 100 years, and then they'll be forgotten too. They'll pass into the dust. But we're going to be forgotten a lot quicker than that. You know, maybe our families will remember us, but Simeon's going to be in the book, the Holy Word, for the rest of eternity. Amazing, stunning. Same kind of thing around somebody like Mary, right, and her story. Same kind of thing around somebody like Simeon. Here's this guy who's just hanging around by the Spirit and he happens to be in the temple, the right place, at exactly the right time to fulfill a prophecy he'd made years ago. And I think that's just a beautiful thought. Jewish leadership, was not this was not revealed to the Jewish leadership. There are multiple references in the Old Testament that the Jewish leadership would be blind to the Messiah when he came. There would be a certain number of people in the Jewish nation that wouldn't see it. But those looking for the Lord would see it immediately. So the Jewish leaders at the time, just a quick history lesson, there are four major groups that Jesus could have had their leaders be there, but any of those four would have been in conflict with the other three. So there were the Pharisees, we've heard of them, right? Pharisees, quick description, legalistic, they're following every law to a T, and in fact they don't just follow the Word of God, they build a fence of rules around the Word of God, also Trevor's point in the Bible study, is that there's this thing where they make extra laws so that we don't even get near sin. We're gonna stay so far away from sin with all these extra laws but what that becomes is legalistic. So that's the Pharisees. Second major group of people which Jesus talks to too, Sadducees. They're the exact opposite. A short cliff-note Sean way to describe the Sadducees is they were the liberals. At that point they were reformed Judaism. Right? Judaism's pretty much whatever you read into it. They didn't believe in miracles. I thought that was fables and fiction, and it sounds a lot like the liberal left today, or at least kind of liberal theology, right? Is that none of that stuff's true, it's really just do whatever you want, and, and if you're feeling guilty, come down to the temple and we'll give you some atonement for that. You know, just stop into your confessional, say what you need to say, and then go on living your life. So they were there then, too. Then there was the Zealots. There's no one group of Zealots. We've named them in two different groups, but Zealots were the political nuts. These were people that wanted the Jews to get their own nation back. So they, everything was political to them. It was about power and about how did Jews get back to power. They wanted to, some of them wanted the extreme ones, wanted to fight the, the Roman rulers and actually go into armed revolt and the conservative ones just wanted to leverage their way into running their own nation within the Roman Empire. Fourth group, the aesthetics. These were the isolationists. They said forget all of this, I'm going to go off and live in the hills or the wadis, right? So those folks were known too. They actually, the aesthetics actually had a large following. John the Baptist would have been one of those aesthetics. Uh, they're just kind of these individuals that live out and they're going to live out Jewish law the way they see fit and they're not going to bother with the whole Roman Empire thing. And luckily in Israel there are lots of places you can go that nobody else wants to. Um, so there's, there's some land there that, that was easy to do that at that time. right? So those were the Roman leaders. Uh, Simeon and Anna don't appear to come from any of those groups. They're just holy, righteous people doing their thing in the middle of the politi- political nuts and the, the holy rollers and the people that say you can do anything you want and still be righteous. Um, they're just the people that day in and day out are living out that calm and, and dedicated faith right in the middle of those four groups of people. Those are two people that Jesus, were, recognized Jesus, the Messiah was in the temple and you see that from their prayers. Verse 27 So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when he, parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Again, Luke's pointing out this is all done according to the law. Um, Verse 29, or 28. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. So if he says, according to your word, that's the cue that this was some sort of prophecy that had been made, that Simeon felt like he was going to see the Christ before his death. And it also says that in verse 26. This confirms that Luke is getting is from a confirmed source. So in 26, Luke is just saying it, but in 29, he's quoting it. Yep. I was also trying to reflect and pray about this a little bit. I think there are times when I think, when we talk to God and we say, boy, if I could just do this, then I'd be good to die. If only I could go to Disneyland then I've completed my life's mission and goal I don't think this is as frivolous as that but Simeon's kind of saying boy if I've seen the Messiah I'm pretty I can now die in peace and it's not like an anxious thing or impatient thing it's more like Simeon's relieved ah oh, what you said was true as you said in your word and I get that kind of mood or feeling for this again he, if he dies um, all his contributions to the temple would have been destroyed. Anything he did as a mid-level priest in the temple would have been gone. For my eyes have seen your salvation. How did he know his eyes had seen the salvation? So a young poor family walks into the temple and he walks up and he says, my eyes have now seen salvation. Did the Lord just kind of tell him that's the baby, those people over there? And why is this reference part of what he's saying here? According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Um, in other words, I've seen this Messiah invisible. Is this a knee-jerk reaction? Is Simeon being emotional? And remember he's just and devout. So Luke was already answering that question up front. You see, he was a just and devout guy. He didn't do that kind of emotional stuff. So this was an exception to the rule. And God doesn't do things without showing his people first. Uh, Amos 3.7, you don't need to turn there, basically makes the, car, the case that the Lord doesn't do things without revealing them to his prophets. It doesn't happen. So Simeon, being a student of the word, would have read many references to this idea of blindness and having eyes that can see. So when Simeon somehow has the Holy Spirit tell him this is the baby, he would have been really relieved not only for his own prophecy, but I think because he really wanted to see Jesus. He's really looking for him. And it would have been kind of a neat thing. The blindness over the Jews. There's lots of prophecies to talk about opening eyes. Just in the book of Isaiah, if you look at 29:18, again, this is being recorded, so you can look these up if you want later. 29:18, 35:5, 35, 5, 40, 30, 40, chapter 40, verse 30, 65, 16, the Messiah will help the blind to see. Many messianic prophecies had something to do with people being able to see or not see, that he would be a dividing line. Before the face of all, verse 31, which you have prepared before the face of all people. It's interesting that what was recorded or what Luke is quoting here actually has Gentile reference built right into it. So Luke's finding evidence that Jesus was a Messiah for all Gentiles from his purification. This is golden. Imagine if you're Luke digging through the temple records and you find this writing from Simeon's dedication, because Mary and Joseph told you to go look for it. He said something about Gentiles because it was weird. We didn't know he was going to talk about Gentiles, but he did. You should go jump to check the temple records and find exactly what Simeon said. It was written down. So when he pulls this quote out and he finds this in those records, you had to imagine that Luke as a researcher just found this nugget that he was tickled pink about. Oh my goodness, it says right here that he was going to bring revelation to the Gentiles. This isn't just a Jewish God. This was, from his inception and from his purification, a light to the world. This is as cool to us historian geek folks as the Christmas story is to everybody else. Oh my goodness, it was in the records. It was built in. Verse 32. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't stop. How else did he know? All right, Simeon knew the Old Testament well. He would have read everything. If he's looking for God, he would have seen it. One of the interesting things about the Old Testament is you find more description of Jesus in the Old Testament than you do in most of the New Testament. right? So he would have known passages, again I'm just pulling from Isaiah, I didn't have that much time. 9.1, the, the Messiah would honor Galilee, Isaiah 9.1. 11.1, one, the, the Messiah would be a branch of Jesse. Isaiah 30.21, This is the way, walk in it. Just like Simeon's doing a walkabout. I just thought that was interesting. There'd be a voice behind your ear that says, this is the way, walk in it. That's how you're going to know the Messiah. The Messiah will tell you. It's almost like a prophecy written for Simeon to read and then experience. It's extremely intimate and personal. Chapter 40 verse 26, there'll be signs in the stars. Remember 33 days ago when that star stuff was going on? It was crazy up in the heavens 33 days ago. A month has gone by and Simeon's thinking, Whoever the king was and wherever he was born, he should be coming to the temple if he's a Jewish Messiah. And so he's hanging out at the temple, waiting for Messiah to show up. And lo, somebody shows up. Those four prophecies alone, and there's hundreds around the Messiah, those four alone should narrow it down pretty good. And you can narrow it down if you're Simeon within a few get-to-know-your-questions, right? So this is part of that practicality or the historicity thing here. Oh, there's the little bit in Micah, too. Micah 5.2 that says he'll be from this town called Bethlehem. So he's going to be from Bethlehem, he's going to honor Galilee and he'll, you're going to hear a voice and he's going to be in the branch of Jesse and there's going to be signs in the heavens that show up. So at this time Simeon would have known those things and within a minute he would have found that out. Let me show you how. Hi, what's your name? Joseph and Mary. Oh, Joseph, well, are you, you're here to dedicate your baby? I, absolutely I am. I already heard a voice that I should be the one to help you, but I, I'm not sure about this, but where are you from? Well, we're, we're, we're actually in Nazareth, which is a town in Galilee, but we, we're from Bethlehem because I'm from the family of Jesse. See how that happens in like a minute? And Simeon's going, really? So Bethlehem, this small little hodunk town where a bunch of shepherds hang out, is David's town, and you're actually of the line of Jesse? Yeah, I am. But you live in Galilee? Yeah. So this kid's gonna grow up in the Galilean region? Yeah. And you're here 33 days after all that stuff happened in the heavens? Holy cow! And he's got this little voice behind his ear saying this is the one. No wonder he did. This wasn't flippant. This wasn't this was a just and devout man making rational conclusions. This is the Messiah. And he didn't need any more. than He didn't need Jesus' teaching, preaching, or miracles. All he needed to know was that. And, he's, and at that point he's convinced And he's convinced that this is a Messiah for the Gentiles. I think that's stunning. Jesus' life is not hidden from the public. This is why Joseph and his mother marvel at those things. He's going to be a light to the world. He's going to honor people. He's going to honor Galilee because he's going to come from there. He's in the seat of Jesse. He's a proper inheritor of the throne. This is the most impressive human being to walk through those temple gates and most of the priesthood didn't even see it they were blind to it which meets even more prophecies so they marvel they should marvel it's one thing to have shepherds show up in your barn it's another thing to have somebody hold your baby up in the temple and say here's the Messiah right a total stranger walking up grabbing your baby saying this is the Messiah I'd have been like back off old man like I'm, I'm you know but this wasn't a surprise to Joseph and Mary they had had angels talking to them and yet they marvel at the tension God gives to their life don't we marvel when God gives us attention? It's crazy when that happens. And sometimes you wonder, is this God? And yet Simeon's saying, This is God. God told me you were the one. And you just confirmed it all. Stunning. So they marveled at him, those things that were spoke. Verse 34 Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul too, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Let's go back to 33. I don't want to go back there yet. This is too cool to miss. Okay, so 34. Then Simeon blessed them. Them being Joseph and Mary, right? And he said to Mary, his mother... Behold, this child is destined for the fallen rising. This is really careful wording here. Don't just read over it. He's blessing them, but we don't see the blessing to Joseph, do we? Because Joseph's not the biological father. The first blessing he gives, go back to verse 28. He took his arms up, and who does he bless? He blessed God and said, and there's the documented piece that was the blessing to the father, and then he turns to Mary and blesses her. I love how the Bible elevates the role of women over any other historical ancient documents. And he turns to Mary and he said, behold, this child. He doesn't say your child. He says this child. So that got me, I'm like, why would he do that? It's actually... Oh, I'm up here. It's actually, you, you could think this is a translational mistake so I started to look up the different words and here Luke actually uses the Greek word hautos, right? Six-letter word. Everywhere else he's going to use the word sou, S-O-U, which is a three-letter word. That's not a spelling mistake. It's not, an, it's not an accidental kind of thing that happened. So it's not a translation error or anything like that. When he says this child um, or when he says, instead of your child, those are two very different words in the Greek language. There's no mistake here about what Luke's, what, what's being said and how he's recording that. The other thing is the word child, is actually, child is destined, is one word. And, alright, I, I, I warned you I was gonna get geeky here. It's the word, Greek word kemai. It's a present indicative word. So, teenagers in the room, here's your English lesson for today, present indicative present indicative means present tense. This child is destined. Is is the right word. It's a present tense kind of thing, but an indicative is a predictive. So when you make a present indicative, you're saying this is currently already happened. Does that make sense? So when you say this, behold, this child is destined, which is two words, this child is destined for the rise and fall of many under, under Israel it means that rise and fall has already happened and this child is that thing that is going to happen. This is the dividing sword of all eternity. Past, present, and future indicative. All wrapped into one. It's a really interesting phrasing and it would have been something that Mary and Joseph would have remembered for years to come. I have, no, I have no problem thinking that proud parents would remember that kind of thing. This child is the salvation of the world. It's already done already a fact. Behold, this child is destined for the fallen rising of men in Israel. Luke doesn't say that this is another Old Testament re- reference so I would call this another Easter egg. In Isaiah 8, 12 through 14 it reads like this. Just listen to what it says. But the Lord of hosts, you shall regard him as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap, a snare to the inheritance of Jerusalem. That's a confusing prophecy. Messiah is going to be something that messes people up. And he will for all eternity. Past, present, and future. The name of Jesus will confound people. And I'll give you some examples of that. This is going to hit pretty close to home in a second. You know someone's heart. Their hearts will be revealed in verse 35. You know their heart by asking, what do you think of Jesus? It's really easy. I can tell you where you're at spiritually just by that question alone. What do you think of Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he some kooky teacher in ancient history? Is he make-believe? So either you understand what history is all about and how we compose history or you just don't want to believe in Jesus, right? But historically, we're seeing a historical record, first person born from first person witnesses. Typically, that's what stands up in a courtroom today. So is he the Messiah? Is he, who, is he your Lord? So I can agree that Jesus was powerful. I can even think he was Messiah. I can think he's the Messiah for the Jews or I can think he's my Lord and King and I can actually serve my Lord and King. I can have lots of different perspectives on Jesus but at the end of the day, he's going to be a sign which is spoken against that many thoughts, the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You don't speak against something unless there's power there. If there was nothing to it and Jesus didn't have followers, we wouldn't be arguing about Jesus with our family and friends. It just wouldn't be a discussion because wouldn't, there wouldn't be anything there. So how do you get a carpenter's son? Remember, he's still this big, right? 33 days old. Am I close? How do you say about a baby, this is going to be the thing that, for, that has already happened for all eternity that we're going to argue about? This kid right here. The name of Jesus. You can even tell what somebody thinks about Jesus by what swear words they choose to use. right? We don't get mad and stub our toe and say, Oh, Buddha! that hurt. Darn. We don't say, oh darn, we're stupid Bhagavad Gita or Zoroastrian. I mean, maybe those are hard words to say. So you could just, you know, Allah is pretty easy to say, but we don't use those words as swear words. So why do we use the name of Jesus Christ as a curse word? Because there's power there. It actually feels like there's power there. It feels like a swear word. And again, I was a kid and at one point. There's power in that name. And we wouldn't argue about it if there wasn't because there wouldn't be Christians that made us argue about it. Those darn Christians, we wouldn't even be talking about Jesus if there weren't Christians around. We could just ignore the whole story, right? But there's all these Christians that actually experience the power of Jesus Christ in their life and they're excited to talk about Jesus. Many hearts may be revealed. Amen. Verse 30. I got 10 minutes to talk about Hannah. Then we go to the second account, which is Anna. Again, isn't it amazing how in the Bible we see women elevated? Who's Anna? There was one Anna, a prophetess, and the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was of great age. She'd lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of 84 years. So puberty plus seven years of marriage plus 84 years, she's easily over 100 years old. She's the old lady. When you're a widow in first century Palestine, you have a few limited choices. You can remarry to get food and shelter. You can go back and move in with your family, which is seen as kind of disgraceful. You can, be, you can go to the oldest profession and live that kind of life, right? Or you can go hang out at the temple where the Levites might have some extra food for you and even become a servant at that temple. So Anna was most likely the caretaker of the building, but have you ever had a janitor that everybody knows they're like, oh, that's, that's Anna the janitor. She takes care of the place. She's been around forever, 84 years. Everyone knew her. What happened with Jesus was done in public. An interesting thing happens with her. Um, she was a widow for about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers day and night, which is where I get the idea that she lived at the temple. She's always there. Everyone knew Anna. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Judaism something, we don't get the same description of Anna here where Simeon was quiet and reserved and it was a real intimate conversation through Joseph and Mary, Anna there's none of that. Everybody knew Anna was talking about Jesus for about 30 years from birth to his ministry. There, I saw this kid Jesus he was the Messiah he was it and it says that she looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She spoke of him, Jesus, to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Every Jewish person over the course of 30 years that came into that temple had some crazy animal telling him Jesus was here and saying redemption has come. We're here, we're there. John the Baptist was out in the wilderness saying the same thing and had a following. So there's a group, this small little group of people looking for Messiah that are starting to believe he's a kid somewhere in Israel right now, growing up. right? Luke doesn't mention the trip to Egypt. Uh, he doesn't mention the wise men those are details that aren't really relevant to a Greek Roman audience right he just says they returned to Nazareth so when they performed all these things according to the law of the Lord they returned to Galilee their own city Nazareth and the child grew and became strong in spirit filled with wisdom The grace of God was upon him he was born in the law and he was there so we arguably see that Anna is this really important second witness the fact that she speaks about them to all of those who looked. Now we have W, witnesses, so we have dates, two accounts, witnesses. This is proper Roman history and Luke probably thought he wrapped up his case pretty good. That these are events that happened, they're well documented. He's got quotes from the temple, temple records, arguably the temple records. Um, and in that instant we see it. Simeon was on his day off and just happened to come by the temple where Anna was there day and night. She was always at the temple so you see some contracts there. They spoke of him, and all those who look for redemption can look to Jesus. What a wonderful thing. We know the Christmas story so well, but look at all the gems that are in the same chapter. Like, Luke was building an entire piece there, and his writing, I think, is beautiful. Um, I'm blessed by what Luke did here, and I hope to tell him that in heaven someday, that he dropped in these Easter eggs for his Jewish friends that would have known that Jewish history, but he wrote an account that would have been perfectly Roman, and would have met every legal account of that inheritance and prophecy. He found two witnesses that validated it, Simeon and Anna, and he documented those two people and had them in there, and even cited his sources because Simeon would have passed by this time. Anna might have still been alive. We don't know. She would have been old. Um, But it doesn't say that she lived. It's just everybody knew her. So he didn't really have to make references because everyone knew about Anna and what she'd been saying in the temple for a long time. So he's got that private intimate witness and he's got this big public speaking at the temple every day kind of witness. But there were witnesses there. It happened. He was dedicated properly according to the law of of Moses but also the law of Moses itself allows for this propitiation, this substitution for us. And as Simeon says, it's a dividing line for the people. So in summary I would ask us that same question. I'm going to know your heart by how you answer this in your heart. Who's Jesus to you? Is he your savior? Do you believe he's the Messiah? If that's only an intellectual thing and you you need more convincing about that, let's talk. We can do the intellectual thing, but it's never gonna get to that third question. Who is Jesus in your heart? Does he talk to you? Because for Simeon, a just and devout man, he was upon him, the Holy Spirit was upon him, the Holy Spirit directed him and guided him on where to walk and what to say and when to talk and how to do things. And he was shown Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So if Jesus is is in you in some way, it means there's something between you and God that's connected. And the hardest thing, I'll admit it, I was watching some dumb show called The Magicians. I know, it's like sin. I'll just admit it and confess it to you right now. But it was on Netflix. It was free. I could hit play. And they had this really interesting dialogue. They They're talking about magic. And they said, well, is the thing is, because they're like, why don't we just give up? They're trying to get into this super Harry Potter magic school, right? And They're like, why don't we give up? This is stupid. And the, the other young lady says, we can't give up because we now know magic is real. We can't quit. What kind of idiots would we be? Once you, it, it was so much nicer when we didn't know that this was real. Because we could just fake it. We could just say that it's gone. The difference is, Jesus isn't some magic trick on TV. There's a layer of existence that's real that Simeon experienced when he went on his little walkabout and just, where do you want me to go, Lord? That way. And he's just getting that little voice behind his ear like it says in Isaiah. And you just start going that way and then things go, like, happen. And you're like, oh my goodness, God, did I just get used? Like, I'm not even, nothing about this is me. You're just using me, Lord. Me, I'm broken. I still watch shows like The Magician. Like, I I have issues. And God still uses me. And how does that happen? And how does that walk? Once I know that's real and I know the presence of God, the arguments don't matter anymore because it's my existence, right? And I can't turn back from that. And this is, I think, part of what Luke is saying to Theophilus. You know he's real. You need all this legal stuff, I'll document it. for. Heck, you want to pay me to travel and talk to Mary and interview all these people that I you know, have heard about, I'll do that work for you, Theophilus. But essentially that question is, who is Jesus to you? And what kind of person are you going to be because of that relationship? So we can get into the research. You can geek out with me on all the, like, let's dig into the Greek words and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, either this stuff changes your life or it doesn't. And it's not going to change your life because you tried hard. Simeon didn't try hard. The Bible says Simeon waited upon the Lord. And he waited for years. Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years before God talked to him. But that faithful, just, righteous description of Mary, Zacharias, Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, consistently Luke saying it's these faithful people that wait upon the Lord that the Lord speaks to them, and he uses them. And according to the Holy Spirit going out to all of the believers at Pentecost, we all have the same Holy Spirit talking to us that talked to Paul. It's the same Holy Spirit in us that talked to Peter and that Jesus promised would be there. It's the same Holy Spirit that whispers to us to talk to our coworker, talk to our neighbor, encourage our family, bless some brother and sister in the church. It's the same Holy Spirit that gives us those inclinations that told Simeon to walk to the temple that day. Be good and faithful servants. Wait upon the Lord. Don't watch stupid shows like the magicians. And reveal to yourself or let the Lord reveal to you who he is. And in his word, he does that in some pretty amazing ways with these wonderful Easter eggs. But ultimately, we got to pray that the Lord speaks to us. So if you bow with me, I'll pray on behalf of us as a group. Lord and King, we come before you in the church as just a group of people that call upon your name, Lord. You promise that your Holy Spirit is here with us right now because we've gathered the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, before Jesus spoke a word on this earth, he was the Messiah. He was named before he was knit in the womb. And he was prophesied hundreds of times, Lord. There's nothing that you do that you haven't revealed in your prophecy. Lord, we can be blind to that or we can see it for what it is. The only explanation for the Christian church rising as quick as it did, without any leader, without any military, without any nation supporting it, the only explanation, Lord, is that you were at work. You did something in history. Thank you for Luke. What a blessing it was that he did that work and he documented those pieces and he found the quotes and he did the interviews. Lord, we're so blessed by that, but the end result has to be our heart that something in our heart just waits for you. We want you to be in our lives. We're waiting, Lord, for you to bring us more joy than the next movie from Hollywood. We want to feel from you, Lord, more exaltation in your presence and you doing something in our life than we feel when we get a weekend off or a Christmas break. Lord, may our joy be in you. May we wait upon what you're going to do next. Lord, may we wake up tomorrow and say, what are you going to do today, Lord? We're waiting on you. And Lord, all we ask is that you come upon us. We welcome that. We ask that you reveal things to us like you did to Simon. Help us to have eyes to see what you're up to. And Lord, once we have those eyes, may you lead us. May you direct our steps and guide our paths because there's no going back. Once we see that world, once we see what you're up to in this universe, Lord, it's so absolutely amazing that it makes everything else paler in comparison. Lord, may we have joy in the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this patient group of people. Um, thank you for their hearts. Thank you for their brother and sisters in the faith. Lord, we all just want to serve you. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, we all pray. Amen. Thank you for your patience. Again, if you're not as geeked out as I am, I apologize. I hope that was still a wonderful adventure into Luke. On Sunday, we'll finish up Luke 2 and talk about John the Baptist.